We're back in John chapter 4, and we are continuing to set in on this conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. We got down to verse 15 last week, and we're going to pick up in verse 16 this week as we continue to see this conversation unfold. And we'll begin in verse 16, and here's what it says. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For, the, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Let's pray over these verses today. Our Father in heaven, Lord, hallowed be your name. Lord, you are holy. And Lord, we come and ascribe to you the glory that you are due. And Lord, we fall short of giving you the glory that you deserve. But God, we pray that from the depths of our soul, we, we give you everything that we have today as, as far as worship and praise and honor to you because you are worthy and you alone are worthy. Father, we're thankful to be here today. And we pray that, Lord, these scriptures would come alive in our souls, that we would have ears to hear as we hear about you. So please lead us into all truth today. And Lord, speak to us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have to go back again, as we did last week, to get a context of what we're going to be dealing with today. And, and we find that in the last verse of chapter 2. And this will come well into a play today when we start to continue to look through this story we remember that right before he goes into chapter 3, even though there was no chapter and verse divisions at the time of this, the last verse in chapter 2 of John's account of the gospel says, And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the theme that keeps driving us. We're going to go through these different uh, conversations with people. We've, we've came across Nicodemus. We've come across the Samaritan woman. And through the gospel according to John, he's going to come in contact with different kinds of people. And the theme that drives us is that he knows what's in the heart of every man. He knew what was in the heart of Nicodemus. And he knows what is in the heart of this Samaritan woman. And that's the theme we want to look at is, is she's trying to maybe cover things up, or maybe she thinks that no one knows some of her uh, inner thoughts or her inner being, but, but Jesus is going to pierce right through her into the heart of who she is. And if you remember how this conversation played out earlier that we mentioned last week, 
He said to her, if you knew who it was that says to you, give me a drink, you would have then asked him for that drink. And what he's saying is, listen, you would stop worrying about how the Samaritans and the Jews get along. You would stop worrying about other people and and, and what they're doing. But you would be consumed with the water that I'm offering if you knew who I was. That would be primarily in your mind. And now Jesus is going to begin to unveil, if you will, begin to pull back layers so she can see who he is. And we won't see the big reveal of who he is just yet in in this week, but he's beginning to show her who he is. And he begins to do that in a way that is very surprising to her because he begins to call her out on uh, certain things of her past. and, And this gets this woman's attention. So let's see how he begins to do this. He says in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, You have correctly said, I have no husband. Can you imagine this? Here's a man that she just met, a Jew, who she's never seen before. And he asked her to go get her husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, That's right. Correct. You've answered correctly. Excuse me? Remember, he knows what's in the heart of every man. And then the continuation of this uh, story goes like this. Jesus said, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. He takes it up a notch. He not only says, yeah, I know that you don't have a husband. You've actually had five. You remember when we said that so many times people will go back to the well because they're thirsty and they think they can find that that soul-quenching substance in other people. And maybe this woman was the same. Maybe she was so empty and she thought that she would find it in a marriage or a second marriage or a third marriage or a fourth marriage or a fifth marriage. And she never was going to find what satisfied and quenched her soul. Because no one and nothing can satisfy the soul's thirst except for God. And he says, you've had five. And the fact that you don't have a husband, that's correct because you're living with one now. Can you imagine? He calls out her past. Says you've had five husbands and you're currently living with one now. Jesus is God and he knows what's in the heart of everyone And he begins to show this to this woman at the well. And then in verse 19, he says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Some of the roles that Jesus had, he was a prophet, he was a priest and a king. However, she's stopping well short of who he is. And again, that's going to come later in this conversation. But here she is, and she says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet because only someone of this status would be able to tell what you just told me. And then it almost seems like she tries to divert the conversation. Here Jesus is is talking about her past and, and what her current state of sin she's in. And she says that I know you're a prophet. But then she flips that conversation, and she says what she says in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What is she talking about? Well, we have to go back to a little bit of history here to realize what is going on. 
If you remember or recall last week, we talked about the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were considered spiritual half-breeds. The Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. And here is uh, why this lady mentions this mountain, because the place where they are, the place where this well is, there are mountainous uh, mountains around them. And there are two that are prominent in the Old Testament that would have been in this region. One is Mount Ebal and one is Mount Gerizim. And we find this in multiple places in the Old Testament, but we can see it very clearly in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And when the, the cursings and the blessings of the Old Covenant were read, the cursings were read on Mount Ebal and the blessings were read on Mount Gerizim. And we also know that uh, in Genesis, when uh, Abraham was told first of this covenant promise, uh, he made an altar in a place called Shechem, and Shechem would have been near this area, and this mountain of Gerizim would have been overlooking that area. And the Samaritans did not believe in anything past the first five books of the Old Testament. So they didn't believe anything outside of the Pentateuch. So in that con- confinement, they believed because Moses or, uh, Abraham had built an altar in this area and because the blessings of the covenant were made on Mount Gerizim, that this was the place of holy worship. So here this story is, this woman is at the well, and in the backdrop here, she may have pointed and said, it is in this mountain that we worship. Mount Gerizim would have been a place where they would have set up temple worship, and they would have thought that was the holy place of God. Of course, if you take the whole canon of Scripture, and you go past the first five books, you will find that Christ and, and the God mentions where this place of worship will be. We find an example of that in 2 Chronicles 6, 1 through 6, where he says it's Jerusalem that will be the place of true worship. It will be the, Jerusalem where the temple will be. But because they didn't believe anything past the first five books, they didn't believe that Jerusalem was the place of holy worship. So she begins to compare and contrast. And she says, we as Samaritans worship on this mountain, up on Mount Gerizim. This is where we worship. And you Jews say that it's in Jerusalem. That's the context of where she's going with this. There's a context of why she says, it is on this mountain we worship. And then you say that it is in Jerusalem where men ought to worship. And then Jesus says something remarkable to her in verse 21. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming, whether neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What is he saying? Well, I find this very near and dear to my heart because this is exactly what we have been teaching and preaching and covering, working through types and shadows. What he's telling her is this. You see that mountain where you worship and you do all your rituals and everything you go, you think that's the place you gather? It's no longer going to be like that. And if you want to look to Jerusalem where the temple is standing now, in a short period of time, that temple is not going to be needed anymore. Neither in this place or in Jerusalem will be the place where true worship is defined. There will no longer be need of the physical temple, why would that be? What was it pointing to? What is all the Old Testament pointing to? It's pointing to Christ, who she's speaking with. And he says, listen, the hour is here. It's coming. I'm about to lay my life down on the cross. And when I die, 
it's all changing. That physical temple is needed no more. I mean, you think about what we talked about in the temple, in the tabernacle. Everything's pointing to Christ. You, you have, you have the, the altar where the sacrifice was made. You have the, the basin there where you were cleansed. You have the holy place where you have the table of showbread as he's the bread of life. You have the candlestick, which he's the light of the world. You have the altar of incense, which his body and a sweet sacrifice was the sweetest incense to the Father. And then you have the veil that separated the the holy from the holy of holies. And only the high priest could go into that inner court, which was where the Ark of the Covenant was. But do you realize even in Hebrews chapter 10, I do believe it is, the Bible says that his body, his flesh, was the veil that was torn. That his body was ripped. Do you remember when he died on the cross, the veil was ripped from top to bottom? And that was a, a symbolic gesture to show that there was now all access to the Holy of Holies through the death of Christ. It was not limited to one person. It was not limited to a high priest. It was not limited to once a year. But through the death of Christ, and it even references, like I said, his body was the veil. His body was ripped and torn on the cross. And in that sacrifice, all that barrier has been removed. And now all those who believe have full access access to God. And we even know about the Ark of the Covenant. Everything in the Ark is pointing to Christ. The, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the manna, and the, the Aaron's rod, all that is pointing to Christ. And we know that Christ is the true mercy seat to which the blood was applied to atone for our sin. All that is pointing to Christ. That is just temporary. And this is what he's telling her. There's going to come a time that hour's here, and it's so close to being fulfilled, where it's going to be different. I mean, you think about all the, uh, the duties of the people that were at the temple. We know that the high priest would come in, and he would offer these sacrifices. And we know, because we've covered it so much, that his job was never done. He could never sit down. There was no place to sit down in the temple because it was a symbolic gesture of the work was never done. They continued to have to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But when Jesus, our true high priest, made the once and all sacrifice, when he entered into the true heavenly temple, he sat down because the work was done. The sacrifice was complete. We even go to the sacrifices that were made there, and Christ would be the true sacrifice. It is the temple that is pointing to God. And this is what he's telling her. There does not need to be a physical temple in the future. And we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. But you know what? It was no longer needed when that veil was torn. When Christ was on the cross, it was no longer needed. And this is what he's telling her. Because at the temple is where God met with his people. We know that in the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the temple here, the presence of God met there at those places. But Christ wouldn't just meet with His people at a temple anymore. He would dwell in our hearts and meet us where we are. That's the difference. They would come to Jerusalem. They would bring their sacrifice. They would bring their worship. They would come there to experience the presence of Yahweh. But there's going to come a time, he says, where that's no longer needed. Because it's all pointing to the one whom she's speaking to. And you don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience the presence of God, do you? 
because you experience the presence of Him right here today. The physical temple is no longer needed. Jerusalem, nope. Jerusalem, that's where, I, that's where I said it was going to be. That's where I put my holy place, but it's coming a time where it's no longer needed. This is what he's telling her. He says in verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. What he's telling her here is that she worships in ignorance. She does not understand what she's worshiping and why she's worshiping because she does not understand the true totality of Scripture because she's stuck in the first five books. And what she's worshiping is in ignorance. When she goes to Mount Gerizim and the people of Samaria go to Mount Gerizim, they're worshiping in ignorance because that's not the place where God designed and destined His name to be worshipped. It's in Jerusalem. It's Mount Zion. And then she... After hearing this, he expands it a little farther and he says, For salvation is from the Jews. And that is true. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. And he gave them privileges. He he gave them the law. He gave them the temple worship. He gave them all the promises. All that was given to the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. He chose to come and do his work through that lineage. And that's where it all began. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. And we, as Gentiles, are the wild olive branches that have been grafted into this, into this root of the olive tree. But salvation is of the Jews. And even though there's a partial hardening right now on all the Jews, there will be a time when that hardening is removed and the full number of the remnant of the ethnic Israel will come. And then the end will be near. But it is from the Jews. This is where it began. By God's own choice. And then in verse 23, he expands on it a little farther. He says, but an hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You see? Like we mentioned before, that the tabernacle and the temple were, was the place where God would meet with His people. But then in the incarnation, we see something miraculous. If you remember in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And the, the Logos became flesh, and eskenosin is the Greek word there, and that word means to tabernacle or to dwell among us. And he would, God, Yahweh, would dwell with His people in the tabernacle and the temple, but in the incarnation of His Son, now we have the dwelling of the Word with us in the form of Jesus Christ. And through His perfect work and through His sacrifice on the cross, we have established that that temple would no longer be needed. But we also know that the temple was a place where true worship was taking place. And part of the, the sacrifice was part of the worship. That to have and bring proper worship to God, you would bring a sacrifice, and there would be sacrifices brought to the temple. That is where worship was laid. It was at the temple, and it was mainly shown through sacrifices. It was done by outward religious activities. It was done by all the things that we see in the Old Testament. They would come, they would have a prescribed worship, they were to do that. 
But you know as well as I do that there would be people that would bring sacrifices and their hearts were so far away from God it wasn't even funny. But based on their outward religious duties, it looked like they were worshiping. And this outward sign was required in this old covenant. They would come to Jerusalem. They would come and they would bring sacrifices. They would come and go through these rituals and they would come and this is where the presence of Yahweh would dwell. But things are getting ready to change. The hour's here. The hour is coming. And he says this, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You see, with the death of Jesus, who was the true sacrifice, the temple worship was soon to be replaced with worship that the Father would be seeking in this new covenant. And what is that worship? You know, so often we come and we just use that term so frequently and so unknowing sometimes. And across the churches worldwide, we have worship leaders, we have worship services, we have proper, or we say it's proper worship, but, but there's a certain worship that the Father's seeking. And what does he mean here by spirit and in truth? Because if we are trying to please the Father, then we should know what that is. And let me just draw your attention to this really quickly. So many times, and, and rightfully so, we worship Jesus and Jesus only. Right? Where's the heart of your worship? It's to Jesus. Or we may throw the Holy Spirit in there every now and then. But do you know who I believe gets left out of the worship is the Father. The Father. What do these verses say? These are the worshipers that the Father is seeking. These are the worshipers that is pleasing to the Father. And so often we just overlook the Father. It's Jesus, 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 and it should be Jesus. We should. He's triune. We should worship Him in His triune nature. But we should also not forget about the Holy Spirit. We should not forget about the Father. Do you know why you're a Christian today? Because of the Father. The Father set His heart's affection on you, and He is the one who elected you from the world's, uh, for the world was. That's what Scripture teaches. It's the Father. Think about when Jesus in the, in the New Testament tells us how to pray. What does He say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. When's the last time you praised the Father? Worshipped the Father? Because the Father sent the Son to speak the words of the Father to portray the Father, to exegete the Father. That's what He did. And then He sends the Holy Spirit to what? To point back to the Son. And who's the Son pointing to? To the Father. You see, if we're not careful, the Father gets pushed to the background. But these verses are the kind of verses that are speaking to the Father. And these are the true worshipers that the Father is seeking. And let's hear what that is. What does it mean to be worshiping in spirit? Let's start there. The term spirit here is speaking of a spirit that is not an outward worship. It is not a just going through the motions, worship. But this is a worship that is true and sincere from the heart. 
This is from a spirit that has been changed. This is from a heart that has been renewed. This is from a life that has been changed. It is the deepest core of who you are. And you cannot fake that. Remember the temple. They went and it was outward religious festivities. It was, I'm going to lay this sacrifice down. I'm going to bring this sacrifice down. The worship was done in those mannerisms and in those uh, ordained activities. But now it's going to be different. It's going to be in the heart. It's going to be done from a heart of sincere, true worship. Think about what the new covenant says. He says, I will write their, uh, the law on their hearts. Not on tables of stone, but in their hearts. You want to worship Him in spirit? It is from the innermost being of your soul. In spirit. The spirit of man. The spirit that has been changed by God will produce true worship that is done in spirit. And then the spirit of God directs us in that worship. Directs us in how to worship Him properly. Which we'll get to that in just a moment. The worship that the Father is seeking only comes from a heart that has been born again and changed by the power of God. As the God the Holy Spirit is indwelling us by the Holy Spirit. And we go back to where we started. He knows what is in the heart of every man, doesn't he? Nicodemus, could he was going through all the outward external rituals. I say the prayers. Remember the Pharisees, what they were accused of? Saying long prayers to be heard. But true worship is in the heart. True worship is in spirit that has been changed by the power of the living God. And what does he also say? He says that they would dress up and have the longest flowing robes so they could be seen. They would sit in the highest places of honor. They would give outwardly so people could see that. They would come to the temple and they would offer these unacceptable uh, sacrifices. They were doing all the outward religious things. But God is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit. Truth, a spirit within your heart that has been changed. Do you love him from the depths of your soul? Because you can't fake that. You can't fake that. And if you love him from the innermost being of who you are, then the outward things will come. You'll do it for the right reason. You'll do it for the right motive. You will do it to please God. You see, God is not fooled. He is not fooled by outward Christian activities, but he knows the heart of every man and woman. And he knows if you're worshiping him in sincerity from the heart. And we see that right in Matthew 15. What does it say? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. That's hypocrisy. The people were coming and doing all the outward things, but their heart was so far away from God. True worship begins in the heart that has been changed. True worship begins from a heart that has been touched and reborn by the power of God. And God knows that, and so do we. That's what He wants. He does not want pretending. He does not want us just to go through the rules and the rituals and the things and the activities and all that. He wants worshipers that worship Him from a heart that has been born again. And if you have been born again, you will worship Him from the depths of your soul. And you will worship Him in spirit.
But he also goes a little farther and he says, not only do I want you to worship in spirit, I want you to worship in truth. What is he speaking about here? He's speaking about true worship that is dictated by the truth that we have. And I believe John 17, 17 tells us that. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. You want to worship God properly? He tells us how to do it right in here. This is where true worship begins. True worship is worship that God finds acceptable. And before you say, well, God accepts all kinds of worship, does he? Well, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu. They were in the temple or the tabernacle. And they didn't offer acceptable worship and they were dropped dead in their tracks. Not all worship is acceptable to God. What about when Moses came down off the mountain, he sees Aaron and them running around like a bunch of madmen worshiping this statue that they've made. Look what happened as a consequence to that. God does not accept all worship. All worship is not a pleasing in his sight. And so often we try to go by feelings and emotions and we try to figure out what kind of true worship is. True worship is that is done by truth and its truth is in the word of God. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He points us to what? The truth of the word. This is where true worship begins. This is where true worship ends. It's as shown in the truth of God's word. I've said it before, every time we open the Bible and we read, that's worship time. That's worship. Because we are worshiping Him from a heart that has been born again and from the inner being of who we are. But we're also worshiping Him in truth as His Word tells us. And any worship that doesn't line up with the Bible is not true worship. You want to know how to worship God properly. You want to know what kind of worship the Father is seeking? Without hypocrisy, from the depths of your soul, and that which is in line with His Word. That is spirit, and that is truth. We do not get to decide what worship is, but it must be in line with His Word. And just so we have some examples here, let's give some examples of what true worship looks like in our lives. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now remember, the, the temple, what would happen? They were required to bring a sacrifice. Remember, because worship and sacrifice go hand in hand. And coming to the temple, you would do these rituals, you would do these things that He commanded, and you would bring a sacrifice. A sacrifice was offered for worship. But he says, like he's telling this lady, it's no longer going to be needed. Because you're going to bring a sacrifice for worship, all right, but it's not going to be a physical lamb. It's not going to be a physical animal that you're bringing to me for worship. If you want to know the kind of worship that the Father is seeking, the worship that He wants, the sacrifice that He wants, it's you. It's your life. It's every ounce of you. It's your being that He wants. He wants you to present your body, your heart, your mind, your soul, your actions, the talents that He's given you. He wants all of that being presented back to Him as a sacrifice. Remember the Old Covenant that we're talking with this lady about, the Old Testament, brought physical sacrifices. That's where God met with His people. They brought sacrifices to worship. He says that time is, the hour has come where that's no longer going to be needed. Because through the death of me and through my resurrection, it's going to change. 
And now I'm going to meet with you in your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's where I'm going to reside. That's where I'm going to dwell. And here's the sacrifice that I want. Here's what true worship is to the believer. You bring yourself as a sacrifice and lay it down before God. That is true worship. So before we come in and we say, well, let me just worship God in this service today. Here's the question. Have you laid your life down as a sacrifice to him all through the week leading up to today? We don't just come into this place on a Sunday and be like, it's time to worship. Worship is every day. And it commences on the Lord's Day when we gather all together and in corporate worship we sing and praise God. But have you and I worshipped properly? It says this is our spiritual service of worship. Have you done that? Have you laid your life down every day and sacrificed to God? Remember, think about those animals. Here's the sacrifice. Here's the worship. Have you come every day and laid your life down and said, here I am. From the depths of my being, I love you. And whatever you want, I give to you. Here's my talents. Here's my abilities. Here's my time. Here's my effort. Here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's everything. I lay it down to you. And that is worship. That looks different than a lot of services we see around the world today, doesn't it? We see worship as those who are running around and acting crazy and doing this and hooping and hollering. And that's not true worship. We're going to see that in a minute, too. It starts with you sacrificing your life to Him. That's where worship begins. And it can't just start on Sundays, 30 minutes before church as you come in this door. These are the worshipers that the Father is seeking. That comes from a heart that loves Him every second of the day. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. He gives us a clue here of another view and another clue of what worship looks like. It says this, Therefore, since we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence, in awe. How many times have we read through the, through the Bible and given examples of when people truly see who God is, what happens to them? They're in reverence and they are in awe and most of the time they're on their face. That's true worship. It doesn't have to be all excited all over the place and, and doing all that stuff to be worship. That has been brought in by, I don't know what. I don't know where that idea came from. You want to look at the people who truly saw God and how they worshipped Him? We go to Isaiah. We've mentioned it before in Isaiah chapter 6. When he sees the glory of God and he sees the, the, the seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy. What does he say? I'm undone. I am ruined. And he was so broken before the presence and the power of God. And we see that time after time again. Do you know one of the kind of the, the true worshipers that the Father is seeking? Worshipers who are in reverence and awe of Him. Who are on their face before Him. Who are uh, just crushed by the weight of His glory. That understand they have no business being in His presence. That understand that He's so holy and so awesome and so powerful. And they just are in awe that this God who is all these things would love them. And save them. When we come into worship, do we come in reverence and in awe? These are the worshipers that the Father is seeking. 
Again, this is truth. This is spirit and truth. The spirit of God is pointing us to the truth of his word and he dictates worship. Reverent worship in awe of God. Then he goes in Hebrews chapter 13, the next chapter, and he says, Through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. So here's sacrifice again. Do you see the theme that runs? In the Old Testament, at the temple, if you want to have sacrifice, it was correlated with worship. Worship and sacrifice. Worship and sacrifice. He says that's no longer going to be done. You're not going to need a physical sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice, and things are going to look different. Now your sacrifice is going to be your body. Now your sacrifice is going to be also praise. Giving Him glory. Giving Him honor from a heart that has been changed. Do you praise God? Do you praise the Father? Do I praise the Father? And look what it says. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of God, of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips. Give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for such sacrifices God is pleased. He even goes a step farther. True worship is loving your neighbor as yourself. Looks different, doesn't it? This is what the worship of the Father is seeking. Do we continually praise God? Remember, when we listen to that song, it says, To you be the glory, and we've covered it before, but there are two glories that we're talking about. There's the intrinsic glory of God, which is who He is. Those are all of His attributes. This is the intrinsic being of God. It is who He is, and that never changes. The, the intrinsic glory is, is immutable. It is never changing. But then we find in places in the Old Testament that tells us that we are to ascribe glory to the Lord, which means that we are to do our, from our hearts to praise Him and from a, a heart that has been changed to everything we have to praise Him for what He's worth. We can never do that. But from our hearts, we should cry with everything we have and give Him the glory that He deserves. So, sacrifice of yourself. Reverencing in awe. And also, sacrificing of yourselves with praise. Those are the things that the Father is pleased with. And then in 1 Corinthians 14.40, just so we're all clear, Paul has just ended up a section on things that have happened in a church service. And just so we can summarize it all, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. That's what he says his worship should be. It should be done properly and in an orderly manner. You see, this is the worship that the Father seeks. You must worship Him from your heart and your soul and all your being because He knows that inner man and that is where true worship resides. Not on the externals, not on the activities, but from the core is where the Spirit of God dwells and that will produce from our spirit true worship. And then we also... We must also to remember that we must do it in truth. Again, you and I do not get to decide what worship looks like. We don't, lest we end up like Nadab and Abihu. Lest he takes the whip and brings us out of the place of worship as well. We don't decide that. Those who worship him must. You'll see that. It doesn't say will. True worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
And the Spirit guides us to the truth of the Word to show us that. Now, let's just look briefly at the elements of a worship service when we gather on the Lord's Day. It says that we are to read and preach the Bible. That's what those verses tell us. 1 Timothy 4.13 and 2 Timothy 4.2. We are to preach the Word. We are to hear the Word. We even see this when the, uh, in the early church in Acts chapter 2. What did it say they did? They gathered and they heard the teaching of the, the disciples there. True worship on the Lord's Day will require reading of the Word of God because that's the truth to which we worship by. That is the truth to which we are pointed to. It also says that we are to sing the Bible. We are to sing a praise to God. It says to give us a praise uh, to His name and to ascribe to the glory due His name. That singing is acceptable in the eyes of God. And a good place to start is if you ever want to just, even at home, not even talking about being here, if you ever want to just sing to the Lord, start in the book of Psalms. Because Psalms is the book of prayer and a, song, a, a book of songs. And these would have been sung. The book of Psalms would have been sung. Can you imagine that? You want to sing the Bible to God? That's acceptable worship. You're like, I don't have anything to sing. I've listened to the same songs over and over. I don't know how I'm going to sing or praise God today. Well, take open your Bible, flip to the book of Psalms, and start singing it. Because that is dictated by truth. You know who inspired the words in Psalms? The Holy Spirit, which is truth. And you want to sing praises to God, you sing through the Psalms and see how it changes your life. Prayer is also supposed to be proper worship. Remember when he cleansed the temple, he says, this is my place. This is the place where I've called by, uh, the Father's called by his name. And it's, a, it's supposed to be a place of worship, a prayer, a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. Prayer is a way we worship the Father as we worship Him and surrender to His will and give Him glory that He deserves. This is true worship. This is the worship that the Father is seeking. But again, all of these come from the heart and are dictated by the Spirit of God leading us to the truth, which is His Word. And here's the last one we'll mention. Another element of worship when we gather together this is why I believe this is so important. We talked about it a little bit on our midweek service that we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so many times we feel like we're all alone when we're in the world. But when we come together, we are here to encourage one another. And you know what? I believe you've experienced that before, where you may have experienced something through the week, but if you can just get here and talk to somebody about it, if you can just text somebody about it, you are not alone. You have someone there to encourage you. And that's what the Bible tells us. Do you realize the Bible tells us to be in church more and more and more and more and more and more and more as the day is drawing closer to Him? Not less. We'll be in church more. That's what we find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Again, what is worship? Worship is in spirit from the heart that has been changed. It is sincerity. It is purity from the heart. It is not false worship, it is not hip, uh, hypocritical worship, it is true worship. And it is dictated by the Word of God. 
He says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as it has the habit of some. So some have gotten to the habit of not a gathering together. But we're to gather more. Why? To encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you see why you're also supposed to gather to worship? To love your neighbor as yourself. Because look around. You've come to worship God. But the Bible says you've also gathered to encourage one another. That's why you've also gathered. He has, he has brought corporate worship into his truth because he knows the importance of it. This is not we come and sit in a seat and we're all by ourselves. It is we are together as a church, as a unit, to encourage one another. That's the importance of also gathering. And he knows that persecution is going to increase. He knows that the righteous will suffer persecution. And he knows that we need each other. So he says, don't only just come to do the things that we've talked about. Don't just come and gather more and more and more to worship me more and to, to love me more and to sing praises to me more and to pray to me more deeply and more sincerely. But don't stop gathering together for the purpose also to encourage one another. That's why you also come. So you see how when we look at the greatest command, it is love the Lord God with all your heart and your soul, which is to him. And then guess who it doesn't point to next? Yourself. But it says love your neighbor as yourself. Look, I don't want to come. Okay. He's commanded you to come. You come for him. You come and praise him. You come and honor him. And I guarantee you won't be disappointed. And if that's not good enough, then you say, hey, I want to think about everybody else that's in the church. And I want to come and I want to encourage them because they need it. And that's what true worship looks like. Because it is under the leadership of the spirit of truth. You see, true worship is not dictated by us. It's dictated by the Father. It's dictated by the Holy Spirit pointing us to the word and the truth therein. He says this, back to John chapter 4. He says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth from the heart with sincerity and under the authority of Scripture. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. That's a big statement. These are the people that the Father's seeking. That's the worship that He wants. And it's very hard to say, oh, we love Him, and then despise what He says that He wants in worship. Because if you love Him, what does He say we'll do? Keep His commands. You see, if you look around the churches across the world, they'll say, well, worship means this, and it really looks like this, and here's what I want it to be like this, and here's the way it has always been here, and this is the way. No one cares. That's not the point. The point is, what does the truth of the Word of God say? Because that is where true worship lies. From a heart that has been changed. From a heart that loves Him with every fiber of their soul. From a heart 
that gives everything to Him and cries out to Him in worship and praise continually and is guided by the truth of the Bible in true worship. You see, it says this in verse 24, God is spirit, and He is. He's the invisible God. That's why He's omnipresent. And that's the miraculous part of the incarnation to where the spirit of the Logos would have joined with humanity and become flesh to make the invisible God visible. But God is spirit. That's why He's everywhere. That's why He's omnipresent. And it says, those who worship Him must. Must worship in spirit and truth. Now think about this just for a second as we close. Why does it say that the true worshipers must worship Him in spirit and truth? Because He knows the heart of every man. And there were people that went to the old covenant tavern, or to the temple in the Old Testament, and they were playing the part, bringing sacrifices, bringing sacrifices, but their worship was false. Their lips were professing, but their heart was far away. They were bringing detestable sacrifices because they weren't done with the true heart and the motive from a heart that has been changed. And now today, there's many that do the same thing. There are many people that sit in the church who will raise their hand and will cry and will run around and they will do all things, claiming that they are led by the Spirit of God all day long, but it's not in line with the Word of God and their heart has never been changed and they do not offer the worship that the Father is seeking. And those who offer this worship, those who offer the worship from the heart, guess what kind of heart that is? It's a heart that's been changed. It's a heart that's been that was dead and been brought to life. It was the heart that was in the tomb, dead in sin. But by the power of God, it has been raised to spiritual life. It is that heart and that heart only that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because that gets to the heart of the matter. That gets to the inner man. It gets past all of the rituals, all the festivities, all the outward signs, and it pierces to the soul. And those who worship this way have been changed. That's why these worshipers must do this. All the worshipers that worship Him properly will do this because they've been changed. And again, this looks different than what is spoken a lot today. But I want you to just Think about where this conversation is going, because it's not done. She says, but we've worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, there's a time that's coming. That temple will be no more. Because the fulfillment of it is in your presence. And you won't have to go to Jerusalem to worship me. And you won't have to go to this temple for my presence to be known. And the sacrifices will stop. All that will be over. Woman, because of the one you're speaking to, it's pointing to me. I am the sacrifice. I am going to the greater temple. I, the God, the Holy Spirit, will dwell in you. We will meet you where you are. 
Your heart will be changed, and that is where true worship will reside, in a heart that's been changed. He's given her a type and shadow lesson she doesn't even know. And then in the following verses, he's going to tell her who he really is. The great I am. But see, if you're a Christian here today, don't you want to worship God in the way that he wants you to worship him? Don't you want to know what kind of worshipers the Father is seeking? We've just heard it. From the heart. With reverence and awe. Singing praises to him daily. And every day, offering your life as a sacrifice to him. And then when you come in this place, we do all those things, but we also come to encourage. You realize that's part of worship is to encourage others? That is the worship the Father is seeking. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth as those are the worshipers He is seeking. And the Father is seeking those worshipers The question I want to end on today. If he scanned this room, would he find those worshipers? Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this word. And I thank you for the truth of it. And Lord, it's not easy. To hear these words because so often we fail. So often we lose sight of what true worship is. Lord, so often we become selfish. Thinking that it's all about us. It has to fit our needs and our desires and our wants. But that's not worshiping in spirit and in truth. Lord, let us go back to where truth is found in your word. And let us examine what true worship looks like. And Lord, let us begin to pray that you would change us and conform us into that worship. And Lord, we thank you that from our hearts we can worship you in spirit and in truth. Because you've changed us. And Lord, we're so thankful that we do not have to go to a temple. We do not have to do all those things that were once required because they were pointing to you. And Lord, you have fulfilled it all. You are the sacrifice. You are the mercy seat. You are the Lamb of God. You are the fulfillment of all righteousness. You entered the greater temple. Father, you are the incense of the body that you sacrificed. You are the light of the world. You are the bread of life. Lord, it's all pointing to you. You are the high priest who sat down because the work was over. The temple was no longer needed, the physical temple, because of you. You are the veil that was torn so we can have access to God. So let us rejoice. And Lord, let us know that we can worship you here. You came to us. You have dwelled among us, God. You are living inside of us. And how we worship you, Father, in reverence and in awe, 
with worship of song and in prayer. And Lord, let us encourage one another today. Lord, you are seeking these worshipers. And Lord, when you're seeking, let us be among those whom you find that worship you this way. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.